Welcome to the Every Day is Saturday podcast. The number one motivation show on the planet. No more Mondays for you. It's time to make every day Saturday. This is the podcast where we help you to accept who you are, not where you are. On the roller coaster of life, you know we only sit in the front seat champion. So make sure you are fastened in Let's go. Tired of feeling run down all the time during the week? We can help you make every day feel like it's a Saturday. Let's go pack your bags. It's time to leave Averageville. Introducing the man who thinks abnormal stands for above normal. When you're on fire, people will travel from miles around to watch you burn, baby. We are fired up. The host of the Every Day is Saturday show, Sam Crowley. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Every Day is Saturday podcast. Sam Crowley here with my friend Nick D'Angelo. Nick has been in the real estate asset management game for the better part of a couple decades, uh, raising capital, really helping uh, the everyman out there understand. And I got some real estate questions for Nick, man. I got some real estate questions. But uh, like I mentioned, he's in the real estate asset management game. I'll let Nick tell you a little bit about what he does. But Sharp Cookie, I want to also chat to, with Nick about his entrepreneurial journey, which is really why we all turn into the Everyday Saturday podcast is how does every man, every woman, like how can somebody take all of that risk and find freedom and chase their passion and their joy? So Nick, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Sam, good to connect with you here. I really enjoyed. We hung out previously and got to chat for a while, and um, I walked away from that with just a whole bunch of respect for you and learning more about you and catching up. Uh, yeah, a little bit about me. So Nick D'Angelo, I'm with Saint Investment Group, is my company. We just crossed uh, $206 million in assets under management, so I'm a huge fan of investing. Uh, we focus primarily on specifically um, passive income. So we really leaned into that. My background as an entrepreneur, like you said, built and sold three different companies. Uh, and then after that really was on a journey of what do I want to do from there? Why do I want to do these things? And what do I find highest value for me to kind of build into my life? So uh, quick, yeah, uh, almost two decade background in 60 seconds, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, how do you, how do you even, I always love these podcast introductions because there's so much more to people. And it's like, how do you get that into like a 30, 60 second clip? But that's why we have the rest of the show Absolutely. to dive into that. So Nick, let's let's dive into your background just a little bit. Where were you born and raised? Like, tell us about, you know, growing up, where you're from. Because right now you're out in California, right? I am. I am. I'm a Southern California kid, born and raised in Anaheim, Orange County, surrounding areas. Um, I have a great, huge family. I got probably... Shoot, 55 cousins, right? So <laughs> lots of aunts, lots of uncles, but a lot of cousins. Uh, big Italian family, you know, kind of immigrant background, blue collar work ethic, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of amazing things that came from that background and a lot of hard work and entrepreneurial perspective that, you know, I stand on the shoulder of people that started from farms and from things like that. And each generation tried to make it. So it's uh, it's an honor for me to work hard. And I really truly look at it that way uh, in the workplace or starting businesses or pursuing any investing of any kind. Yeah. You know, what's funny, that whole work hard thing. I enjoy working hard. I just only really enjoy working hard on things I, I love, you know, and I know it sounds you know. silly, but that took me a while to figure that one out. But in this day of, you know, and I love, look, I love four hour work week and, and hacking this and hacking that, but there's nothing wrong with a hard day's work, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, uh, I think you nailed it, Sam, that we, I think work has, has fitted, has a different fit into people's lives today. And that the mentality of work has changed a lot where the fulfillment that work brings needs to be at a higher standard than it has in the past. And so I'm super passionate about what I do. And in any interview I've, I've hired, I just was doing this math the other day. Uh, while we were putting together some team stuff, we've hired over 300 people over the course of the period of time we've had businesses. So one of the things that we've learned is finding out if we're a good fit for them. Yeah. Right. Do we fulfill the needs of the people that work with us? Because if not, then there's just an emotional miscue that's equally as important as can somebody do the job. Yeah. So you, that's so you're, you're so right on that, man. Um, you know, you being in, you know, you're an investment, you raise capital, 
assets under management with real estate. When when did you get bitten by this bug, Nick? Like, has this always been in your DNA or what were you doing before you got started on this journey? Yeah, so I had my dad, my uncles, um, some really successful people that uh, really started in the swap meets. So there's this kind of hustle, right? There's this yeah. hustle of, and so I saw a lot of hard work. I saw a lot of good examples of how to, you know, put in that side of the work. But then I saw a lot of people that were successful doing it a little bit differently and starting businesses and selling businesses and investing. And all of a sudden, they have these amazing lifestyles where they spent time with their kids. I have three kids. I'm a huge family man. I'm very, very, it's the highest priority to me. Uh, but these people were successful. They put in their work, they sold businesses, or they added a lot of value, invested, and had the opportunity to give back to things like their churches, their family they had enough time for, people they cared about, philanthropy that was highly valuable to them. And I just was like, what sets these people aside from these people that are having a lot of struggles and it's it's month to month and paycheck to paycheck? I just want to know what that gap is and lean towards and learn from those people that, uh, you know, had things figured out the way that I wanted to uh, my life to look. So that was kind of trying to trend towards that direction and uh, fill in that gap, uh, do that math for my own life. So when did you get started? Like, I mean, you're the president of Saint Investment. You talk about hundreds and millions of dollars. Like that, that's mind blowing stuff. But where did it, where did it start? Did you did you buy a rental property at some point, Nick? Were you living in a duplex while renting the other half out? What was going on? Yeah, I, part of it started. I I was went to work very young, twelve years old. I was doing construction, and uh, it was backbreaking. It was brutal, and I I enjoyed the people I worked with, but the work it was just a lot. It was eleven hours in the sun every day six days a week. And it was no joke. So I didn't want to do that. That's yeah. what, that was my baseline was I wanted to step up from there and seeing a lot of entrepreneurs. And, and, you know, at that time there was a big tech buzz and people were leaning into a lot of really strategic, amazing startup situations. I went that direction. That, that was the bug that hit me instantly being able to, uh, you know, solopreneur or small team or virtual team. So over time I treaded that direction. I read every book I possibly could and then on the real estate side, I knew that that's where I, I always knew that's where I wanted to end up. Maybe build some companies, maybe sell them. But that real estate to me is the best investment of all time, strategically, cash flow wise, all those things. So how do I get there if I have no money and I'm broke as broke, 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 right? So um, I leaned into the startup side, started some companies. The first was an ATM company because of the fact I was in the real estate side also working full time for zero dollars. I had to negotiate that job with a small family office and I had to beg, plead, negotiate, came in with a list of buyers. I had to do everything I could to get a job there to learn for free in the middle of the Great Recession. So in order to pay my bills and eat, I had to be an entrepreneur and start a side business. And I chose an ATM company as that. So that's kind of where this dual track started was I wanted to learn from the best people I possibly could. They weren't hiring even for free. They told me no for free. And wow. then the other side is I had to start an ATM business just to kind of pay my bills and, you know, eat and, and kind of survive on that side. What's an ATM business? What do you mean? ATM. So um, it was literally automated teller machines. You walk up, you put your card in, you put your pin code in and they distribute money to you. Right, you so owned, owned it. Like you, you owned the machine. I did. So I owned. I built a portfolio of those. My first six figures I ever made was from ATM machines. So it was a, uh, it was an interesting business. It was an interesting business. What's one of those? What's one of those costs? That's interesting to me. What's an ATM machine? So on the cheaper end, probably around three grand. On the more, so it's actually relatively affordable. The hardest part was contracts because you had to know you had to put them somewhere with high traffic. At yeah. least, you know, medium to lower crime. Uh, you had to have installations. You had that satellite. You had to have a lot of different things plugged into that. So my mornings were spent two hours every single morning before my day job was spent calling hundreds of people and saying, hey, you're a 7-Eleven. Can I put an ATM in there and cut you in on the revenue? I did that. I basically got 200 no's a day, but I only needed one at a time. One yes at a so that like that five dollar fee I pay at an ATM, what percent goes to you as the ATM owner? I mean, you can negotiate different vendors, different locations will have different fees, but um, oh, I'm a 
kind of a tough negotiator. I was a tough negotiator at that time, so I took the majority of it. Yeah, I had good. To go to the house. Yeah, no. Hey, apparently, no wrong answers there, man. Now, see, I find that stuff fascinating. Like, none of us want to ever hear no, and we all want to have success. But there's so much pushback along the way. I mean, just that story alone. We could do a podcast on your ETM business. You know, we're not, but we could because the value there is when you said, "I don't want to dial in here 200 notes. I don't want to hear 200. I don't even want to hear two. You know. But what was it in that mindset at that time that why would you ever dial 200 people? Was it because the old adage is I only need one yes and I know the revenue waiting if I do and the opportunity? Like at some point you got to be beat down, no? After hearing no that many times? I mean, it was, yeah, it's, it was brutal. It was really brutal. It was, uh, you know, I read a lot of books. I read a ton. I probably read way too much, but. Some of it is like, you know, one of the perspectives that I've been able to glean from some of the books, especially recently rereading books about hard times or tough situations, is that sometimes the pressure is what you literally need. And nice. I was hungry. I had no income, but I had too good of an opportunity to pass up with the family office. So the answer sometimes was everything and yes to both. Right. And so yeah. it might have been really long days and really painful days, but I knew I had to feed myself. I knew that I was already in real estate to a degree. So I knew how to select locations that were strategic for these ATMs, uh, worked with landlords that I, you know, trusted eventually to roll out more and more. Um, so getting a lot of no's, um, part of it was I had a chip on my shoulder of like, every time I got a no, it was like one step closer, got to get there. Yeah. I'm hungry. Can't eat protein shakes for every meal, getting sick mm -hmm. of noodles. You know what I mean? And so it's, uh, it was just like, Part of it's like, you know, a chip on my shoulder, the other side being like, if I can just figure out how to survive today, I can learn this whole uh, family office strategy thing. So I just had to bridge the gap and I knew it, it, I just had to get there. So um, a little bit of both. Yeah, no, that's fascinating to me. Like, I, I love that. I love that mindset. You know, uh, you're right. I think a lot of the times we, we work really hard and then we'll have a really good season. Like there's a season for sowing and a season for reaping. But you can't do both in the same season. So, and then we get the harvest come in. We kind of exhale a little bit. We get comfortable, and then we won't get results. Maybe three months from then, we wonder why. Well, you didn't sow the seeds three months before that. There's a reason you have the harvest come in. You know. Um, so, in the day, in like an average day, what you do now, Nick, you're not selling ATM locations or buying ATMs for three grand. You kind of move the decimal point over a little bit there. It, it, it does some of that in your earlier years play into how you negotiate now? Like when you're dealing with, is there, a, and I, I, this, I, this is going to sound like an incredibly stupid question, so forgive me, but no, no, no. if you're negotiating a 10 or $100 million deal, is there a difference in mindset with that than there is negotiating a ATM location? So there is, and it's probably the opposite of what most people think. And so the biggest deals we do today I find that that it's actually more of a win-win than it is, you know, it's it, for sometimes with smaller deals, there's there's not enough, there's not as many, there's not as much meat on the bone, right? So you get both sides can be a little scrappier and they, they kind of want to do the winner take all thing. Um, I didn't like that. That's one thing I never really enjoyed. I want to walk away being like, I want them to feel like they want to. That's mm -hmm. really important to me. So bigger deals today, the relationship side is so important with what we do. We were part of a $100 million uh, deal. We didn't take down the $100 million. I mean, we were a smaller portion of that. But it was a long-term relationship with you know a financial institution. They have to feel like they won too, like they got a fair price. We have to know that we got a fair price too. And then everybody works with each other again and again and again. So while neither side got an overwhelming victory, both sides say, hey, I won some, I lost some, but overall it was a balanced transaction. And when we see each other the next time, it smiles and handshakes instead of one guy got burned or one person got burned and they are not going to forget that. So yeah. uh, if anything, what I found is especially real estate, long-term career, I bump into the same people decades later, right? And so these are people that, hey, see you at this conference. Hey, remember we did that thing together. What else are you doing? You know, we transact well, we know you transact well. And there's a, a relationship that builds into that. So I find that there's more meat on the bone because there's just more zeros. 
And then everybody has a higher level of mutual respect to even be at that level. And burning somebody, the, the air is so thin, there's so few people that it gets around very quickly. So, um, you know, Warren Buffett and others talk about it, it takes a, a lifetime to build a reputation and it takes five minutes to, to lose it. Something, or, you know, something loosely. Yeah. Um, that has extremely been my experience is treat people with respect, have the highest level of virtue and morality so that you never once the right thing to do, but also you never question if you acted respectfully and in, in, in everyone's best interest and that pays off huge dividends. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, I'll tell you that flies in the face of a lot of what we hear. Um, like wealthy people are greedy ego um don't talk stuff shirts like you're not a stuff shirt you can't if you're watching the audio version of the podcast right now nick's not a stuff shirt all right he's wearing a sweater sweatshirt he's a cool dude like it, like you it's so that you named your company saint investment all right where's that come from that's a that's a that's a unique name for an investment capital company yeah it um one is, you know, I, I'm a, you know, I'm a Christian. I have a, a strong faith in my, in my background and that's something that I lean on. And, uh, we have that standard of, you know, virtue and morality and things that we do, but the name Saint specifically came from, we were doing transactions. We still do in our income fund where we purchase mortgages from banks and financial institutions. And these are typically mortgages where there have been payments that have been missed along the way. Mm. So Maybe it's COVID and a family was furloughed or laid off and maybe they missed three, maybe six, maybe nine months of payments, right? So, you know, you take like a big bank, like a Wells Fargo or something, they pool perfect mortgages and sell those. Perfect mortgage pool, 10,000 loans, they sell those to Chase or someone really big. When those have problems and somebody didn't make their payments, they're no longer pristine loans. They have a problem. So they sell to guys like Saint, and what we can do is then call the borrower and say, you know, the person, the homeowner and say, how do we resolve this? Right. You missed some payments. Do you want us to do this and extend your loan? Do you want to make payments on that? Our goal is to keep you in the house. It's not to do a foreclosure. We don't want to do any of that. So here are some options that you win with. So Saints comes from a background of we get to provide a win for the lender, a.k.a. like a Wells Fargo, because they get to sell to us at a discount, but they get to recoup the most of their money and go focus on what they want to do, which is make more loans, right? We get yeah. to create a win for the homeowner because they stay in their house. Because otherwise, Wells Fargo or whoever most likely would foreclose on them. So yeah. by us being able to do what we do, we keep someone in their home. And then we have a win for our investors because they make a great return that's above market. So the same side is... I've been on the foreclosure side of many different transactions, the dicey side, you're buying things from banks that are, um, that you don't feel great about. Right. And, and maybe there's a story that you don't really want to be involved on the negativity side of that. So the same side is to give people a second chance while creating a win-win for a lot of different, for really everyone involved. It's just to keep in mind that standard that we're going for, uh, when we transact, when we do things in real estate. How many loans are you talking about? If, if you were to have a big bank sell you a, a pool of their loans, um, that's a lot of work to reach out to each individual homeowner. How many loans are you talking about that get pooled in a in a in a typical package? It so it depends on the size of the bank for sure. Like you till you know Wells Fargo level bank might be thousands or hundreds in a transaction. In our portfolio for our income fund, we have over five hundred loans in that. Just to give okay. you an idea. So yeah. we're on the smaller end of that scale. Some of these financial institutions are doing the, you know, the hundreds and thousands. That's not us, but uh, we still have 500 loans that back up our Saint Income Fund. So we kind of play in that. So maybe a dozen here, maybe a hundred there. You know, kind of different transactions. Yeah. Okay. Dumb question time again. Um, there's risk for you. Like these people haven't made the payment in six nine months or so. That's not trending in the right direction. Um, how many of the, what percentage are you able to save, keep in the home and still, I mean, you're, you're a for-profit business. So, I mean, you got to make money. I mean, what's the, what's the win rate for you? I know, you know, like every, like everybody will, of course, me being able to stay in my home winning, right? Just that alone. But that's a, that's risky. It sounds like if you're buying a hundred loans that haven't paid in, you know, six to nine months, how many of those actually are you able to save? So the good news is, we focus almost entirely on the ones that we can save. 
So okay. that is built into our process of the entire thing. So the vast majority, to give you exact numbers so that you have an idea, uh, it's that we have, what, hold on, I'll give you the exact, our last, uh, our last calculation. Our on-time performance is 96.7% of our loan payments. So we choose our due diligence upfront is extremely detailed. What we look for so that we don't have foreclosure discussions are a lot of equity in the house. We yeah. want to make sure that someone that lives in that house, that's a family that lives there, that's homeowners, that they want to stay. Yeah. Right? Because if they want to stay and we want to work it out with them, usually we'll figure that out. Yeah. Now, if they had no equity, they could just walk. And that's a whole different thing that we try to avoid aggressively. So yeah. we look for equity in their homes so that they're motivated and that there's an asset that really benefits them. We look for good FICO scores. So maybe they missed payments during COVID three years ago. They still have that balance, but they pay their cards. They pay their credit cards. We look for you know income that they can actually afford it. And we look for the areas that we want. We like to work with suburban neighborhoods, uh, you know, middle class kind of people that are in the middle of the road with that are gainfully employed that want to stay in their homes. So that is, that equals a ninety six point seven on time payment rate for our portfolio. Wow, that's that's like that's I would have never guessed that, but sure. I, I but I had no frame of reference either until you started talking about it. That's uh, but that's why you're good at what you do, <laughs> you know. And uh, no, that's pretty cool. So hey, I want to I want to kind of uh, move a little bit in a different direction. You and I were chatting a week or so ago, and you said, "Sam, the biggest wealth transfer in the history is I don't know if you said you're going to obviously tell me either happening or about to happen." I was like, "Oh, that sounds very dicey and a great tease for our podcast." What are you talking about, Nick? What's this big oh, yeah. wealth transfer? Let's dive in, man. You got my ears percolated. Oh, yeah. So in the U.S., it's really the biggest first off to set the stage for what this looks like. This is the largest wealth transfer in the history of humanity. Okay. The history of the planet. We've never seen this before, ever, ever, ever. Okay. So what we're dealing with in the U.S. alone is a transfer of over $70 trillion that needs to find homes. Excuse me. Let me rephrase that. A transfer of over $70 trillion that is passing from one set of individuals to another, okay? So the question is, who are those people that have all this money and all this wealth and all this? The baby boomer generation. So the baby boomer generation in the United States is the largest generation we've ever had and by far the most wealthy. So huge generation in the wake of World War II, right? We, the US emerged as this the superpower, the global superpower, right? The dollar was the reserve currency of the entire world. Europe had a ton of problems. It was decimated in many areas. Uh, huge population losses due to the devastation of the world wars. But the U.S., we kind of stepped in at a time in the war where we didn't take on the losses that many other parts of the world did. And we provided the stability and the strength militarily. Everybody calmed down a little bit. So we emerged since World War II as the global leader absolutely unquestionably with the baby boomer generation to follow that stepped into that role as a glo in global leadership. That generation has amassed roughly $70 trillion. Now we, where we stand today is one, the baby boomers are moving to retirement. COVID sped that whole party up, right? So... All that money that was in the market, hey, cheap loans, cheap this, was because there's so much money that was looking for returns that it actually bid the returns down, right? You saw loan rates in the threes. You saw uh, return expectations of investments, very, very low rates. But now that money is going into more stabilized and conservative investments. So that's the start of this wealth transfer is that the assets that these people, the, the baby boomers are looking for, have shifted significantly. Sadly, this is only going to accelerate to about 2043, whereas more and more baby boomers sadly pass on each year, that money, that wealth that's been built by this generation passes on to the future generations, their heirs, the taxes of the government, uh, you know, that the government levies on um, inheritance tax, taxes, etc. Philanthropy as a big winner in the wake of this as well. Many baby boomers saying, look, I worked my whole life. I want to give back to where I want that money to go. 
whether it's a library, a college, a hospital. So we have $70 trillion in the U.S. that over the next couple decades will be needing to find a place uh, that's designated by the one who passes on. Where's it going? Great question. A lot of that, to oversimplify, most likely the millennials, mm. right? You deal with baby boomer generation, the largest generation we've ever had. Behind them is Gen X, smaller generation, right? Much more savvy in many ways, especially tech-related and uh, catching up a lot more on the um, technology side, the internet side. Uh, excuse me. Uh, the baby boomers had a harder time adjusting, right? They weren't around when a lot of this came online. But Gen X is a much more tech component. Then you have the millennials, a very large generation. Most of the millennials are the children of the baby boomers, right? Usually skips a generation for the children. Below the millennials, you have Gen Z. So the majority of that wealth on the inherited side is going to the millennial generation. Huge generation, came of age during great recessions, you know, very clearly remembers 9-11, very clearly remember, you know, their, you know, the childhood of millennials was marked by dot-com busts, terrorism, yeah. war in the Middle East, 2008 global financial crisis. So that has a huge impact on where millennials are at today. And also with the inherited funds that they're receiving most likely from the baby boomer generation, the, duct, the, the deck is reshuffling in very interesting ways in the U.S., that will impact us uh, politically significantly. Millennials and baby boomers have very different ideas about how the world should be run and what their thoughts are. And there's a lot of money behind that. So we'll see a lot in the next 20 years of where that deck shuffles to. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fascinating stuff. My poor generation gets skipped in that whole thing. So the baby boomer skips over us, goes to the millennials. I'm all right with it. I'm all right with it. But Gen X, Gen X on the wealth scale is actually very successful, by the way. Just so you know, Gen X is, is, is doing good, but uh, millennials do get that, that uh, check passed along from the boomers a little bit. We had the best music and um, the best movies. So, you know, in the you know what? I'm on that. I agree. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, hey, I'll take that. I'll take that. So that's pretty fascinating stuff, man. I mean, scary from the sense we think of that much money transferring, you know, but fascinating at the same time, because the way you just laid it out makes total sense, you know, and I always think about, you know, in what I do, you know, coaching, coaching individuals on how to really create their own million dollar message and launch a podcast. There's a lot of baby, it seems about the baby boomer generation. We stand there for a minute. These are the people that were, you know, burning their bras. They were pretty active in wars and, you know, protesting and things like that. Like, they're not going down without a fight. Like, I find a lot of 60, 70-year-old people showing up on my calendar that want to get their message out there, and they don't want to be told that, you know, I don't have a message or, you know, I'm too old to share this message or I don't care if I don't know the tech, I'm going to figure it out anyway. You know, that was a generation that, at least from my perspective, when I work with, with uh, baby boomers, they may have been the last to kind of catch on, but once they do, they're like, hey, they go back to that 1960s, 70 mentality that, I'm going to figure this damn thing out, man. You know, like I'm going to make it happen. And think about who their parents were, who raised the baby boomers, right? Their parents, the greatest generation, you know, that's typically what they're called, their parents' generation. They came of age in the middle of the Great Depression. And then when they really came of age as adults, they were shipped off to World War II to go fight. So the people that raised the baby boomer generation gave the um, some of the best advice and the best insight, hard fought examples and experience to the baby boomers. So they had, um, I mean, really, truly an incredible generation put, put the U S on the map as the global leader. So yep. they achieved a ton. So yeah, I don't, the oh, lion generation to be sure. I don't think they're, uh, <laughs> you know, laying down anytime soon, no. but it, no. but you know, just very interesting. No, no, they're not. So with what you do on a day-to-day -day, uh, day -day basis, is this something, I mean, you've been doing this now for, what, 20 years? Yes. We're talking about earlier. Right, real estate. So Are you going to do it another 20 years? I'll do it forever, man. I got to tell you, um, I, since I sold companies, real estate's been the focus. It's always, I've always wanted to be here. So it's an honor for me to be here. I'll be doing this my whole life. So that's great that you're there. But what if, like, I've, if I wanted to get into the real estate game, which I did, not only got time on this podcast, but I was the guy buying the Carlton sheets 
CDs, driving around Cincinnati listening to How It Buy. Went to the uh, the Russ Whitney boot camp. Actually, I was the guy at the Russ Whitney boot camp who actually did buy his first duplex with a credit card and ended up buying 40 rentals in the next couple of years as a result of this. This was the OPM days. I mean, this is when you could basically sign your name with a 720 credit score and the bank would just be like, how much money you want? You know, the seller comes to closing with 20% down and we'll just give you 80%. Find a buddy that's an appraiser, buy him a beer and just make the numbers work type. That was back, you know, 2002. Uh, 2008 corrected a lot of that. (laughs) But when I, so I owned, I was a landlord. I had probably 40 or so rentals at the time. Units, um, not all not all buildings, but rentals. I love being a landlord. I didn't I didn't understand. I do get why people don't want to be a landlord. You know, nobody wants that call at two in the morning that the pipes burst or the, the toilet's clogged or something. But I will tell you this, man. I bought my first uh, duplex, a dilapidated duplex, but I bought it with a Discover card. I got a check in the mail, uh, 0%, first 12 months, write your name in it. So I gave it to a realtor and said, let's just make a deal back in my hometown of Bradford, PA, bought a duplex. So I rented the up and down for like 350 700 My mortgage was $190 a month. Taxes, insurance were like 80 bucks a month. I gave myself a $300 a month raise, which was more than my 5% annual increase from corporate. Okay, because I was making 50 grand a year at the time. They gave me 5%, 2,500 before taxes. I didn't have enough to buy a Happy Meal. So when I got that cash flow coming, even though it was 300 a month, I felt like I won the lotto, man, because I could see it. You know, now that's a very like low, low level, but that's that's the vision and the beauty I saw in real estate. That if you, it, it wasn't about necessarily the cash flow at the beginning. It was about the control, being being able to control a piece of real estate, you know, and they're not making any more land, you know? So when you got into this game, did you, you got in before the 2008 mess, right? Right, right around the time. I mean, oh yes, I did. I absolutely started. um, Yeah, I started in marketing beforehand. So I was certainly not cutting deals. I was working for people, you know, family and friends that were successful trying to learn and just doing marketing for them. So yes, before 2008, full-time jumped in right about 2008. So you jumped in, is it the worst time or the best time to get started in it? You know, um, the technical answer would probably be the worst time. I found it the best because anytime there's market disruption, I'm like, oh man, this feels like home, baby. This feels like, you know, I'm like, this is all good with me. Highs, lows, I'm comfortable. So um, I started off with a very low watermark of, of what my expectations were from the market. And I still, uh, that, that stuck with me my entire career. And you started Saint Investment around that time or no? I started Saint Investment in 2015. So oh. when I got, when I got started in real estate, you know, I was working for the, um, this, uh, family office because yeah. they were multi-generational. They were small, they were local. I knew that I, I, you know, I had a connection with their CEO or I knew that he could teach me hands on what he was doing. And again, in order to get in, I said, hey, I got a deal for you. I'm going to work for free. I'm just yeah. going to do whatever you need. And he's like, I can't afford you. That sounds like a nightmare for me to sit there and you staring at me all day, waiting for the next thing for me to teach you or next assignment. He's like, I'm holding on for dear life. We're in the middle of the Great Recession. I don't know if I'm going to have properties going back to the bank being foreclosed on. And we're a three-generation real estate firm, right? So I'm going okay, that approach didn't work. This guy needs some incentive for me to even stick around. He doesn't even have a desk for me for free. So I used the marketing skills that I had and I put together a list. I went to all the real estate investment groups in the area, put together a list of every person that wanted to buy real estate in the middle of the worst market of all time. So when I walked in, I had a list of 500 names of people who wanted to buy apartments for multi-millions of dollars. So this guy, I'm saying, look, Hire me and I will give you this list. You know, I think, actually, I think I gave it to him free. I think I was like, here's a list just for going to lunch with me twice of 500 people that are doctors and dentists and, and net worth able to purchase these deals that want to buy right now. You have a revenue problem. This list has brokerage deals in it. You can call these guys, buy properties with them, and you'll make a commission on that. Send this to your team and get that going. And so I kind of had his attention there. So once I was in... It was to do as much as I could to do, to learn everything on the asset management side. 
eventually worked with some really good investors in the worst market of all time, right? Yeah. yeah. Wanted to buy properties. So the best way to buy properties at that time was through foreclosure sales at sales where you literally walk in there with cashier's checks of millions of dollars. And again, I was like, you know, 22, right? So, uh, very scary to walk in some deal some weeks with $10 million in cashier's checks in my jacket pocket. I don't know who would have trusted me with that much, but, uh, somebody believed in me what? and, uh, I'm sitting there bidding against guys that are, you know, on the side saying horrible things to me. I'm going to bid on stuff just so you starve to death. I want you to lose. I'm going to just bid on everything so you never get a deal. So you have to go tell your investors how you're never going to make it. You're never going to get a deal here. This is my territory. So sure enough, we still like it out. Sounds like a nice group of people. They're bidding. Yeah, they are this, the sharks of the snakes of the sharks of the snake. Um, and so I bid against these people. We bought a lot of deals for significant discounts. You know, some weeks up to $10 million a week. Did some of the best deals we've ever done in real estate to this day. The returns mm -hmm. were fantastic. Uh, it taught me a lot at a very young age. Took a lot of lumps, had a lot of stress, but I learned how to purchase real estate really well. How to do due diligence on huge assets extremely quickly. My spreadsheets are ridiculous. My asset management side of what to do with those once we purchase them, how do we onboard them immediately? So anyways, not to over drill down on inside baseball, but it was a grueling process that was like you had to be laser focused 24-7, driving all over, dealing with huge, you know, huge amounts of money. But huge upside and huge opportunities with really successful investors that I probably got lucky to be around, to be honest. I had to, you know, uh, beg my way in and, and basically buy my way in with value. But once I was there, the, they gave me more than I ever gave them. I'll say that. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating, man. That's uh, were you married kids or anything at the time? I mean, that, that's huge. Like that's a lot. That strikes me as like 80, hundred hour work weeks with a lot of, lot of risk, a lot of work. No kids. Uh, I was dating here and there, but nothing where I had a huge amount of relationship responsibility. That was my life. To answer yeah. your question directly, yeah. Sam, that was my full-time 80, 100 hour, you know, waking up in the middle of the night, taking notes on a piece of paper because I knew I had something the next morning kind of stuff. Yeah. Wow, man. That's really, that's, that's next level stuff. I think, you know, it's hard to uh, it's hard to beat somebody who's going to outwork you. So when I think of those guys in the room with you that were you know saying those unkind things, your mindset was probably yeah maybe, but I'm I'm going to go down fighting like I'm just going to outwork everybody here. I mean they're like going back to that what we were talking about earlier, the value of hard work and and in this microwave society where especially online you know you put a dollar in you want to get five bucks back right away. That's guys like you what you just described and girls out there that that work like that, you can't beat them. You just can't beat them. It was, uh, there's a lot of discouragement from my, especially my peers. But like you said, I mean, my life was streamlined. I went to the gym once in a while, right? Like, but like, other than that, it was like, I didn't have a lot. I focused, I knew that this was a once in a lifetime thing and I worked myself to death on it. Now, now I take business a lot differently. I 100% build in the fact that my children and my partner I mean, she's a huge priority. My three boys are a huge priority. I have an extended family that I want to be close to. I've had periods of my life where I lost contact with the people most important to me. I've had health issues for putting that off. And mm. all that snowball eventually caught up to me every time. Yeah. And so now um, I build a team. I, I'm able to you know, invest in a team with really good people. And to me, I can work a lot less hours, but still do big things by having amazing A players that are bought into what we're doing, why we're doing it, and they're incentivized to kick butt too. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right, all of that. Big amen to all of that. Um, so you're a reader, you're a voracious reader. I wanna know the Nick D'Angelo book recommendation list. If I'm looking, you can give me three or four or whatever. Sure. I, mean, I know I'm coming out of left field with this with you, but I'm an entrepreneur, or I would like to be, and I value freedom and I'm looking to really strengthen my mindset and learn about how to win and win doing the things that I really love to do. Are there any books that pop to the top of your reading list, Nick D'Angelo, that you can recommend to our community? Oh my gosh. 
an infinite list, but um, I'll start with some in some different categories. The first is if you're going through a hard time and you need perspective and you need like the killer instinct and like the understanding of what you're going through um, in a bigger, broader, like really strategic sense. Um, I'm going to say Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl is like, I mean, the first half of the book will have you in tears. It's about a, a Jew going through Auschwitz. But more, that equally is important. I will say equally is important. The second half of the book is what meaning does the hardest moments in life have? And there really, truly is not a better, I mean, you know, refocusing to hear from somebody that went through that. Um, I would also say The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. Those two books, my hardest times ever, those recenter, recalibrate, everything that comes up you realize even the most difficult things, most of the most difficult things create a person on the other end of that where this is actually necessary to get where you need to go. There's some things that are unexplainable that are unanswerable, losses, you know, especially people, et cetera. But those two are for that. As far as killer instinct, um, I'm thinking of a book right now. I'm trying to remember the name of it. One of them is called Winning. Um, it's the coach of Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. And, uh, yeah, Grover, Jim Grover. What's his name? Exactly. Tim Grover. Tim his Grover. two books are insane. And the first one I liked even more, um, I'm, I'm spacing on them. I have read that book. I literally just put that book on in the background, you know, in like an audio over and over and over. And if I need that, like killer instinct in there, it's like downloading Michael Jordan's mindset. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's fantastic. Is it unshakable? I'm I'm really um, I'm spacing on it. I should know that. Tim Grover, both books fantastic. Yeah. Um, as far as mindset of investing, Rich Dad Poor Dad is probably the best place to start. Everybody's heard it, but really, truly, it talks about different types of cash flow, your income. It helps you to understand and visualize that, and then you can go up the ladder of kind of more and more niche investing as you decide what's best for you on that side. So that's a general list. Um, Life Strategy, 33 Strategies of War by Robert Greene is ridiculously good. It basically goes through the best strategy. It basically goes through the best strategists of all time. You're talking Napoleon, you're talking Hannibal Barca, you're talking Roman generals. Uh, and it just teaches you how to survey your life and survey things and really amazing ways. So those books, I, I tend to return to the classics more than I try to get a breadth of information at this point. It's like the best of the best is what I'm really focusing on. Those books I constantly return to. Yeah. Man's Search for Meeting is, uh, I think everybody should read that. I mean, that's just powerful in so many ways, man. Um, and yeah, uh, uh, Ryan Holiday is, I never heard of Ryan Holiday till like two years ago. And then I'm like, where's, where have I been? Or where has he been? One of the two. But uh, his books are really, really good as well. I'm a big fan of his. Tim Grover, I'm going to pick that up. I put that down. Because I, when I go to the gym, I'm always listening to Audible books, books on Audible. And uh, the one I'm, I just finished was 10X is Easier Than 2X with uh, uh, Dr. Benjamin Hardy. Have you read that book? I have. I have. I loved it. Isn't that a great I, uh, book? And Who Not How, their first book. Also That's fantastic. the one I just downloaded again. I never even heard of that. So I went yeah. immediately and downloaded Who Not How. The Who Not How is really, I haven't read it, so you could speak about it. But to me, it's like everybody wants to know the how, but you got to surround yourself with the who's in order to get to where you want to go. You know, It kicks you in the butt and you go, oh, it's stuff you know, but you haven't been punched in the face with the same information enough for it to stick in. I do that all the time. I've heard it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like this book does not let you forget that there are people that are perfect fits for very specific things that are not for you. I'm only good at like a few things, right? Like only good at a few things. I want to get level 10 people to do that, that are really into it and are passionate about it. Yeah. So, and you're fantastic. That's what I did over the past few weeks. I just did nothing but just think like I've never really done that. I've been doing, you know, I left my job, I don't know, 18 years ago or so and started my podcast and I've never taken time to just think about where the vision for my brand and where I wanted to go and the message and who I want to work with and, more importantly, who you don't want to work with. I mean, just things like that, you know, it just not because they're bad people, but just because you, you know, you can only be so much to somebody and you only have so much energy. You only have so much time. And so that 10 X is easier than two X really hit me at the right time. And, uh, 
you know, it's the old 80, 20 law, you know, you're going to get, you know, 20% of your clients account for 80% of your revenue. And, and you can go all the way down the line of productivity with that. I love books like that. I love being challenged to think, think differently. You know, guys like you show up and you're doing something completely foreign to me. Like I wouldn't know, you know, I could sit in a meeting and grab somebody a cup of coffee, but I'm not sitting there and talking hundred million dollar deals with anybody, you know, about real estate and all of those things. Um, and I just think that's what so makes the world so cool is that everybody's doing something different. I just would love it if more people did what they love, because I'll give you an example. You go to dinner and you find a waiter who absolutely loves what they do. Waiter, waitress, you know, they act like they love it. They love the restaurant. They love the vibe. I had a guy in Atlanta one time. I mean, dude, this was, this was 16 years ago, 18 years ago. almost. I still remember. And I asked him, this is so dumb. I don't even know why I remember, but I remember because he loved his job. I go, hey, how's the soup? He goes, oh, <laughs> the soup will make your palate dance. I'm like, wow, I, okay, I've never had my palate dance. I'm, I'm interested. And then you go and have terrible service where you just know they don't want to be there. They don't like their boss. So just using that analogy, like you love what you do. You can tell you love what you do. I asked you the question, like, what are you going to be doing 20 years from now? This, you know, probably better at a higher level, but this, like you, You've got what so many people want, and that is to discover what I love to do, do it well. And it's not that you're avoiding work, but you love what you do. Like, you're one of the lucky ones, you know? Oh, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I, I feel blessed more than anything. Absolutely blessed. Yeah. So that's, that's really cool. I mean, uh, the whole, you know, the whole circle that we've gone on with this podcast of where you started, where you are, all are now connecting the dots. Um, is there advice that you would give somebody as, as we're kind of wrapping, wrapping this up, Nick? And again, station identification, talking to Nick D'Angelo from Saint Investment. We'll put links in the uh, description of the podcast. You can check out Nick's website and all more about him. Um, advice, Nick, for somebody who's like, you know what? I hear you. I hear you, Sam and Nick. You guys sound like you're having a good time. I ain't there, man. I ain't there. I was dealt a bad hand. And I don't see myself getting out from underneath this anytime soon. Or I lack the confidence. I got went through a bankruptcy back in the day. I just I'm gun shy, man. I'm gun shy. I'm in my 40s. I don't want to start over again. I'll just stay where I'm at. Don't want to get into any. What would you get? What advice would you give that individual to maybe help them move along to not, you know, spend the rest of their days just kind of like not doing what they love? Absolutely. You know? I you know the biggest question in what I would try to give somebody is to what do they want their life to look like, right? Because if you have a crystal clear idea of what you want that to look like, then the math becomes how to get there. And are you willing to pay that price? Yeah. Simply put, right? So yeah. I know that there are certain things that I could, Sam, I could be working eight to hundred hour weeks right now. I absolutely could. I, I don't mind those actually. Sometimes it's really exciting in projects. But I have kids and I don't want my life to be 100-hour weeks, you know, every week. So there, I know that it will require sprints, sometimes a month at a time, sometimes two months at a time, where I have to put that kind of focus in because that's what it requires for our company. But I'm not willing to do that week after week. And I know that. So I'm, I trend uh, towards being super conservative financially and to not spend more than I make and to keep that really low, my monthly fees and monthly expenses very low so that I have a, you know, in case of a market, you know, disruption or any issues, et cetera, et cetera, that I can be really conservative. So those would be the two things. The first is, what do you want your life to look like? So if it's an income goal, like a lot of people will say, oh, you know, really it's a more of a money discussion. You know, what do you want that to look like? Do you want to be the CEO? Do you want to be the business owner? That's a total discussion. Many people, many people would actually be more financially successful if you run the numbers, run the lay of the land by being a number two or a number three at a company, right? Yeah. And have a lot more stability, if that's important to them, than yeah. going for a CEO or founder position. If, yeah. they, if they have that burning desire to be a founder, I would say that if you're in your 40s and you have established things and you have responsibilities that you owe your time, effort, and financial finances to, then sometimes you got to burn the candle on both ends. Yeah. If you're not in your 40s and you don't, or you don't have all the responsibilities that often come along with that, I mean, you could jump feet first if you want to. But my answer was always do both. You have you set up the finances on one side where you have the income, 
And unfortunately, you have to do the second shift. And that might be more hours than the first shift sometimes. So um, I would say do both financially establish, you know, a good income and then bolt on what you're actually trying to do so that you don't get in a position where you, you can go broke in the meantime. Uh, if you have the responsibilities on the other side, it's what are you willing to sacrifice on that side? And then the hours that you do put in, right, the 10x versus 2x or 10x is easier than 2x. The time that you do put in has to be 10x. Yeah. If you spend one hour, you got to make it worth more than anybody else's hour. Yeah. Bingo. Man, that's so important. It's so easy to say. It's so easy. I'm not minimizing, but that is so easy to say. But man, is it hard to do because none of us want to send a friend to voicemail or not respond to an email or not meet up with a buddy or not go to a conference. But you've got to start saying no if it's not going to generate that type of pro. And it's not easy to do, man. This is a learned behavior. Trust me when I tell you. But if you can learn to do that and only spend your time where you're going to get that largest return on your investment. And look, the biggest area is family. We all want to make sure that we spend time with the people that we love because we're all gone at some point. But put family over here because that's a no-brainer. We don't have to tell people, go spend more time with your family. Or maybe we do, but I'm just saying that's a no-brainer. But when you're talking about productivity and business and revenue, whatever that is, you should never, or you should, never is an absolute, but you should really guard against time vampires in your life. Then I'm going to just sap that energy, and because you you're never going to get that hour back. I I, I think that's really great advice. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, absolutely. That focus that focus will take you where you need to go. Yep, amen. All right, Nick. Well, hey, that went fast. Uh, Nick, it was great having you on the podcast. So great to get to know more about you. You can check Nick out. Go to saintinvestment.com if you want to find out more about Nick. Well, like I said, we'll put a link in the description of the show as well fascinating guy and uh it was really great having you on the podcast nick thanks so much for stopping by sam i had a blast man just like last time we hung out i uh, love the discussion and uh look forward to chatting soon oh yeah oh yeah absolutely all right that's a wrap we'll see everybody on the next everyday saturday podcast and that's a wrap another everyday saturday podcast in the books thanks so much for listening would you do your boy a favor would you get on itunes or wherever you listen to the everyday saturday podcast and leave a rating for the show it helps amazing people like you find the show faster and that's what i'm looking for amazing people like you hey, i'm always hanging out on the interwebs you can check me out on instagram at every day is saturday let me know you're listening to the show love 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 hearing from fans of the everyday saturday podcast and one last thing when you're ready to launch get on my calendar go to launchwithsam.com you and i are going to work together to set rocket fuel to your dream are you ready let's do it i'll see you on the next every day is saturday podcast